Yo, what's up, everybody? It's uh, today's June twenty fifth, twenty twenty one. It's another episode, free episode of Real Sankara Hours, your favorite Black Marxist uh, political podcast, um, talking about current events, politics from a uh, you know Black radical revolutionary Marxists, etc., etc. Uh, perspective, definitely steeped in you know yeah. Marxian polit- political analysis, quality um, revolutionary content, as it says on the Patreon. Right, exactly. Uh, so, um, yeah, today's June twenty fifth. Um, before we introduce ourselves, uh, I'll just you know just housekeeping all that. Um, <clears throat> if you want to support independent black me- uh, media like this, um, subscribe to us five dollars a month. Uh, Patreon dot com slash real car hours. Patreon dot com slash real car hours. Five dollars a month makes you a patron and you also get bonus episodes um you can also uh be a patron for less than that anywhere between a dollar to four dollars you won't get uh bonus episodes but your patron support is definitely very much appreciated and we also have a paypal that we put in uh show notes um it's a new one it's basically paypal.me slash real sankara hours so paypal.me slash real sankara hours and you can just make a donation straight into our paypal account if if you don't want to be like a you know a monthly patron or any of that if you just want to like you know chip in a few um extra bucks uh that you that you may have to again support this kind of stuff our paypal link uh is in the show notes so um anyway yeah we're going to be talking about Actually, yeah, these are all going to kind of weave together, but we're going to talk about <clears throat> uh, reparations, the right wing going batshit over critical race theory, and then um, millennials getting into adulthood because, yeah, it's 2021 and the oldest millennials are turning 40. So, yeah, and that's all going to weave together. So anyway, yeah, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson 5 on Twitter. And this is Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at Ab- at M. Gunn Peter, I guess. Uh, but yeah, first, uh, this is, you know, very current, hot off the uh, presses or, you know, hot off, I guess, the Twitter sphere or whatever. But yeah, the sentence came in um, and, uh, you know, our boy in Minneapolis, he's going, well, he's getting 22 and a half years, uh, which really is 15 in prison and then seven right. and a half on parole you know if he doesn't like organize a prison strike which i think is really the only thing you can do to and, like lose and, eligibility of parole and, at this point and just to clarify we're talking about uh derek chauvin the uh dickhead yes. uh who murdered joyce yeah. floyd and everybody Fi- yeah saw. 15, 15 yeah. years for a murder rap i mean that's yeah that's i mean it's better than 10 which i guess was the uh was the was the previous limit given to uh Amber Geiger and certainly it's better than one and a half given to Johannes Messerly. Mm-hmm. But still like any of us get convicted of murder like we're not getting fifteen years. So I I mean this is I don't wanna say that it's progress, but I it's not, you know, so incredibly offensive. This is about the best that the system can do. And yeah. I think that we, I mean, 
for for all the pain and all the damage and everything that it took to get us to this point i mean that does it it doesn't bode well it doesn't bode well that like this is the end point if people want to hold this up as the end point of the movement or anything but i mean I, we did get the system to at least sort of acknowledge like and act as though like the way things would be in a rational system So I guess we'll take that and, you know, wait for his ass when he gets out. Yeah, and, uh, oh, before I forget, follow us at Sonicar Hours on Twitter um, to stay up to date with this. Yeah, like, this is, uh, I mean, this is a concession. Um, I mean, you know, what we saw was clearly murder, and uh, this this would not have happened um, without rebellions in the streets, period. Black-led rebellions, but also, like, what made this last summer difference that <clears throat> there are more white kids and non-black kids of color uh joining those rebellions and um you know i do think it uh last summer was like a perfect storm of um you know the pandemic and the shitty economy and everybody being like shut in doors and then having to watch a man get murdered um you know, everybody's seen that video, which lasted almost nine minutes. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it was a perfect storm. But, you know, in addition to that, like, the real fundamental thing was just, like, 400 years of uh, pain caused by racism in America. I think that that's what really... I, I, like, I was, I was talking to you, Peter, about this. Like, I, th- I think, like, uh, black people, black Americans, African Americans, like, I think showed our uh, vindictive side. And showed that uh, we were willing to burn down the country that our ancestors built to, you know, as like, yeah, vengeance for this system keep killing us. And so the system had to respond to just for the sake of stability. So I think, um, you know, when we're the Chauvin verdict should be seen in that context, because without those protests and without those rebellions, I don't I don't think that any of this I don't think I do not think that like Chauvin would have gotten like. 22 years or 15 years he definitely no. wouldn't have but that no was- i mean he wouldn't really have even been arrested uh right exactly and, and you know he's still gonna appeal which oh my mm-hmm. god but that but they <laughs> because they because they're trying to get the economy back they're not gonna do anything to like antagonize people too much they're not gonna let his conviction be overturned but once the economy is you know back and running then i mean yeah police are gonna have their trigger i mean not that they ever stopped you know but yeah they're they're, i mean i hate to say it this way but like it is there are it is a i mean fucking nancy pelosi said it so she called george floyd a sacrifice so that's oh i heard that shit (laughs) yeah fuck yeah so that is how they view it i mean there's a ritual element of ritual human sacrifice, especially in the way this shit gets broadcast. At least she publicly. was honest. Yeah, at least she so. was honest. <laughs> She's actually being fucking honest. So yeah, she, yeah. That's so how she, so they're gonna. So there's gonna be more of them, and um, you know, and that's going to create you know because we are still colonized people in a you know colonial system, and that is like the police like modern policing is all basically from colonialism. Like that's yeah. the like you know right it's not just slave patrols like fingerprinting all that shit if, and if you think about it for half a second it makes total sense but you mean so much of it comes from like occupying the philippines and all that oh, stuff yeah um and there, so 
There's and, a good book, sorry to interject, but there's yeah. a really good book called Tyranny Comes Home, and it gets into that history of, like, basically, it doesn't go into the slave patrol aspect as much, but it really shows, like, uh, police in the U.S. military, like, a lot, a lot of police tactics have changed over history because of the U.S. military's experience, like, occupying other countries, including yeah. the Philippines. Yes. So. Yes, and, which is to say that like there will be an inherently political, un- politically unstable um, situation that you know will be going into all the other fun things that the twenty first century holds in store, and perhaps, I mean, one thing that could really actually sort of diffuse the situation is reparations. But uh, yeah, Joe yeah. Biden says says different, doesn't he? Yeah, this perfect segue. Yeah, so I'm gonna. Oh, you like that one, didn't you? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. So there's this article in Politico that came out earlier this month, and the title of it is "Biden privately tells lawmakers not to expect much on reparations le- legislation." It's the same guy, like you know, when he won the election, he's like, "I have uh, black people to thank, and I'm I'm gonna stick by your side." And, <gasps> yeah, yeah. Well, so, he said he said you ain't black if you don't vote for me. So yeah, yeah. And so um, anyway, uh, let's test Joe Biden's blackness because uh, he's not doing shit on reparations. So you know, but but he and did he, but he did interrupt Boris Johnson to say that he forgot the prime minister of South Africa or president, which he actually <laughs> remembered. But so that's where his brain's at. But. <laughs> So I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from this and then we'll we'll go further into it. Uh, um, so uh, it, the context of it was, uh, yeah, Joe Biden was giving his remarks commemorating the uh, 100 year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. Um, and uh, there were some um, survivors of the massacre and they, uh, you know, they wanted uh, basically there a, a full-throated endorsement of hr 40 which that would create a commission to study reparations keep in mind hr 40 is not a reparations bill it's just creating a commission to study reparations it's supporting the study of reparations it's not actual which rep- is lit which is not even the bare minimum it is right not even an empty gesture right it's saying we're thinking about doing an empty gesture right exactly yeah exactly right that's all hr 40 is um uh, so, like, the issue of reparations was on the table because of the, the Tulsa race massacre that happened 100 years ago. And there were some um, survivors who had testified. So Joe Biden, was, you know, he uh, was, uh, I guess, a little bit supposedly more blunt in criticizing racism than he was before, which that's interesting because this is coming from the same guy who, you know, authored the 94 crime bill. But anyway, here's a couple paragraphs from the political article. It says, but some attendees noted what they considered a glaring omission. Any mention of reparations for the survivors of the massacre and their descendants, some of whom have sued the city and state for compensation, and a full-throated endorsement of H.R. 40, which would create a commission to study reparations. The bill passed out of the House Judiciary Committee in April for the first time since it was first introduced in 1989. As a candidate, Biden said he supported a commission on reparations, but the administration has yet to endorse the actual bill. After its speech Tuesday, the president met, met with members of the Congressional Black Caucus who brought, up the, who brought up the need for H.R. 40, which is named after the 40 acres and the mule promise that now symbolizes the lack of support formerly enslaved people received from why, the federal government. Why would, you, why would you even bring land up, guys? 
Why'd you even remind people? <laughs> According to those involved in the conversations, Biden let them down gently. He didn't gris- disagree with what we're doing, said Representative Brenda Lawrence, a Democrat from Michigan, the second vice chair of the CBC. He uh, he did talk about his plate being full with trying to get the infrastructure bill passed and that he really wanted to make sure that he could get that through before he took on anything else. Biden's biggest concern at H.R. 40, Lawrence said, is getting it through the Senate. The bill also hasn't even been scheduled for a full floor vote in the House where it has 188 co-sponsors. Um, Tuesday in Tulsa illustrated the dichotomy that has come to define Biden's approach to issues of race and race equity. No president has so forcefully forcefully called out the nation's sordid history. At the same time, Biden has downplayed the likelihood of legislative action, sidestepping calls for him to embrace rules reform in the Senate to allow easier passage of relevant bills. In addition to expressing fear that H.R. 40 would die in a Senate behind the scenes, Biden also announced on Tuesday that he was handing off the voting rights portfolio to his vice president, Kamala Harris. And I'm going to skip down a little bit, and and then we'll go. So I'm going to read this paragraph, and then we'll go off. In the lead-up to Biden's Tulsa trip, the administration announced initiatives to narrow the racial wealth gap, including inequities in home appraisals and increasing the goal of federal contacts for small disadvantaged businesses. I think they mean federal contracts for small disadvantaged Mm -hmm. businesses. And in a gaggle on Air Force One on the way to the event, Principal Principal Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said that Biden, quote, supports a study, end quote, of reparations, but believes that first and foremost, the task in front of us is to root out systemic racism where it exists right now. But for some of the audience, simply supporting a study wasn't enough. Um, so anyway, so that basically Biden is like paying lip service to the idea of reparations, but is not promising to do anything about <laughs> reparations. Yeah. Well, I mean, he'll, like, get, he'll get to it after he gets the infrastructure bill passed, which is going to be never. So Right. And he's already like trying to, you know... Uh, trying to go into like i guess some reconciliation with the republicans and oh so yeah so trying to work with mitch mcconnell to get infrastructure well well, yeah good luck well i mean it's like two different things because they tried to i mean this is a little side step but um yeah i they're doing like two things there's two tracks one is like yeah trying to get some dumbass bipartisan thing going and then the other is to do it through reconciliation budget reconciliation which means basically you can work around the filibuster but even then you know mansion and cinema joe mansion kirsten cinema like like their whole point is to just be you know whiny little narcissists who want the world to revolve around them so they'll hold it up and so like anything anything meaningful is not really going to get passed by the midterms which is you know the bare minimum they should do if they want to hold on to their seats but they don't really care so anyway and the Democrats have like a very, very narrow hold on the House. Like, yeah. keep in keep in mind, like twenty twenty, we we just we mentioned this, like I think right at right during the election. But if you look, I don't want to go too deep into numbers, but like the Republicans control, well, Democrats control the Senate, but very narrow. The Democrats control both the House and the Senate very narrowly. The Democrats lost House seats in 2020 versus 2016, but Biden won. So Democrats control the House and the Senate, but the the, the Senate control is just like basically Kamala Harris, like a tiebreaker between. Yeah, basic. That's basically it. Um, 
and then I think there's like uh, I think there's like uh, like a 10, 10 or twelve seat difference between Democrats and Republicans in the House, and that's actually like a loss um, from twenty sixteen. So yeah, like it's already we're in the middle of twenty twenty one by shit within a couple months we're gonna be talking about like i mean basically by the beginning of next year 2022 people are gonna be gearing up for the midterms and so who knows so like yeah like there's very much there's like a narrow window window for the democrats to do something like big so um yeah like biden like he's already the the infrastructure thing like you know is already not looking good so you know, the likelihood of Biden doing anything on reparations is like, I mean, good fucking luck. But um, I, I wanted to, I actually wanted to mention in, in context of the reparations issue, because I was saying that HR 40, again, is not reparations. And if you go back to our first episode, uh, our very first episode, where we're talking about reparations, like I said, like, HR 40 is not a reparations bill. It's just a committee to study reparations, which is like, as Peter said, like, it's like, oh, we're going to study if we care about this and, you know, we'll try to do something at some point in like the future, but, uh, don't, don't bank up. So, um, there, there have been like small local reparations programs, which like already that's pretty iffy, but there is, um, a reparations program in Evanston, Illinois, um, and yeah, the city approved like its for uh, its first reparations program is basically to, particularly the first phase would um, pay black residents of Evanston who faced housing discrimination. It would pay them twenty five thousand dollars, basically for like home improvement costs, down payment, and closing cost assistance and mortgage payments. Um, there's this really good article at NBC News, and uh, they talked to uh, Priscilla Giles. She is a retired English teacher in the Chicago public school system, and she said she's been feeling sad and angry because um, she's lived in the city from 1919 to 1969, and she is automatically eligible, but she said she's reluctant to apply because she said it's not reparations, and that's for sure. And this legislation, this program was supposed to be the blueprint for the rest of the country, so I thought it would be, I want to read a couple like uh, snippets from this article because um uh basically um okay yeah so it says excuse me residents voice their opinions on how the reparations should be distributed during monthly subcommittee hearings the city-led discussions quickly turned away from cash payments to housing assistance to a housing assistance program canon said from the community standpoint it seemed that the it seemed the program was being shaped without locals input um this is a housing voucher program, not reparations, and calling it calling that does more harm than good. A. Kirsten Mullen and William Darity Jr., authors of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, wrote in an opinion piece for the Washington Post. Um, Darity, an economist at Duke University, has said proper reparations would cost the federal government at least $11 trillion. Reparations can come from the federal government, the authors told NBC News in an email. Local programs cannot meet the bill for black residents, they said. Uh, and I'm, I'm skipping around. And basically, okay, so this is where the residents are critiquing it. In the article, it says, 
Residents opposed to Everson's plan say it puts too many restrictions on, on how they can use the money. Renters, for example, can't use the housing assistance because it is only for current and future homeowners. Yeah, Cannon's, there it is. I was waiting for it. Yep. Okay, yeah. So Cannon's opposition began when she contacted her broker about potentially purchasing a home using the allocated $25,000. She learned it wouldn't be enough to cover a standard down payment on an average <laughs> price home in Evanston, which is currently above $400,000. Yeah. Another, another well, yeah. problem. I, I, I'm I gonna, want... Go ahead, okay. go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. I just want to say, so everyone's clear, Evanston is in the north side, is a Chicago suburb on the north side. It's where Northwestern is, and it's very white. It is like, yeah, all the rich white liberals um, of Chicago, that's where they live. Yeah. Or not all of them, but that's, you know, that's that's where, that's what Evanston is, uh, just so everyone has an understanding of what kind of a city this is. Thank you. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, thanks for that. And, uh... <laughs> Okay, so this is, a, this is the last one. It says, another problem residents point out is that because banks and real estate companies would have to be involved, the problem privileges institutions that have historically been the agents of discrimination. So this is this is the thing. I mean, I was, I, 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 with reparations, I think, like, I think this is, I'm, I'm actually really glad that the residents are speaking out against this and saying that it's not enough. And and by the way, like, um, William Darity, like, he, he's, he's been on, he, he's one of the scholars who's been talking about like you know in terms of financially how much reparations would cost and his minimum is 11 trillion dollars from the federal government and that's the number you put and i think like look if, if there's going to be a ballpark for a number that makes sense 11 trillion dollars that's i actually think that's fucking fair uh but what i when they talked about like the um the banks in a real estate company it's like yeah because here's the thing is like even if Let's say the federal government were to give us eleven trillion dollars, as long as that money is filtered through like the same uh, financial system that was implicated in go- going back to fucking slavery. By the way, keep in mind Wall Street was a slave trading market. Like the whole American financial sector has blood on its hands and is still engaged in institutional racism. If the money has to flow through them, then it's like. As the residents are pointing out, like it's involving the institutions that have been agents of discrimination. So, what victory is that? But the thing is, is like when we're talking about reparations, what should be on a table, in addition to eleven trillion dollars, is land and self determination. Because then, like, because the thing about land is land is power. Like when, because the thing about money is that like if money's not tied to institutions and land then you're not able to generate wealth. Like land and institutions help you in a generate and preserve wealth. What eleven trillion dollars can do, if we're talking about like in the context of slavery and Jim Crow and all that, and we total all up the cost of all that harm, then we'll make sense like, okay, land, self determination, then if there's gonna be a dollar amount, I think Darity is Dollar amount is actually pretty good at a minimum. <laughs> at least, uh, at least eleven trillion dollars. That could be like um, the startup capital to help us rebuild. Because when we're talking yeah. about reparations, we're talking about rebuilding from generations of harm. And the what, what it seems like to me, and and, and this is kind of going back even like Biden saying, like his administration saying that they support initiatives to narrow the racial wealth gap. I think what's going to happen is that the Democratic leadership 
and you know the black flunkies who were working alongside them i think what's likely going to happen is that the dialogue of reparations will be watered down to housing vouchers you know like mild tax reforms shit like that that's all gonna get means tested and it's gonna be like oh this is reparations when it's like and and i'm glad that black residents of Ephesus are saying like no this is not reparations so just like with the people of Namibia, I think the res- black residents of Evanston are on to something that's really important when we're talking about reparations in terms of, like, this is not enough. This is what we really fucking want. And clearly, yeah, Biden is, you know, he's like, oh, I'm not going to do that shit. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, this dude is, like, in the 19th century mentally at this point. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I so I just did a quick calculation because... Last I heard, like, the number being floated around was, like, one and a half trillion dollars. And divided by, you know, uh, rounded out to, say, 45 million black people in the United States, that was that would be, like, $40,000. 11 trillion divided by 45 million is, like, $240,000. There he uh, goes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, which, one I mean, sound, which one sounds better, just on that number? Which one sounds well, better? Well, yes. Uh, right. And the average... Uh, with the average uh, wealth for a white family is one hundred and forty thousand dollars or something like that. So, I mean, if the goal, as I understand it, uh, is to eliminate the wealth gap, I mean, first of all, yes, any like there's not there's not a whole lot of shit to study, motherfuckers. Like that, like this is wonks <laughs> being way too smart for their own good. Cut cut the goddamn check. I mean, you're gonna have to. Like, there is going to have to be a negotiation over the size of it, but cut the check. And then this is when the fucking, you know, black members of the bourgeoisie, like, actually prove their fucking usefulness by being <laughs> able to set up the institutions to deal with the with the infusion of money. Because, yes, like, Dang. oh, right. Because, right. Yes. Oh, no. It all goes back into Goldman Sachs or whatever. Well, no, this is like all the people who are like, we need to bank black or whatever like no now you'd actually have the funds to like build your own financial system and Thank like you. you know actually uh like build, develop the productive capacity of the black nation uh the new african nation or whatever but so like the you know the people like the boule or the you know whatever you want to call them the so black people with money and you know access to power a seat at the table or whatever if they were all of one mind on this and were just like this is it like it could get done because i mean 11 trillion dollars is yeah probably more that would actually like cause probably a lot of economic issues but there is a there is a number that is like sufficient to break structural intergenerational poverty for anyone that gets it like you know, I think $50,000 for someone who has nothing like that is enough to uh, put the, you know, put put someone's life on track. Right. And, you know, you it can be sold to white people as like now they can stop. Now you never have to have dumbass conversations about race ever again. And you don't have to feel guilty about being white or whatever. I mean, that's how that's how you sell it to white people. Um, and there's a, there's an amount that would not really fuck up the economy too much. Um, especially like if, you know, the black bourgeoisie is able to 
you know, create present the case like the IMF because the IMF is going to have to weigh in on this, like with that much money involved. But like they could do it if they were at all serious, but they're not serious about being a national bourgeoisie because right. uh, they're fucking Comradors. And if they don't like being called that, then they should act differently. But right. I think that, um, I mean, I think even this stuff is evidence that like, you know, because the cops aren't going to stop killing, like, capitalism is still going to be what it is. And eventually, like, I think the ruling classes realize they're going to have to pay up or something if they want to, like, secure, um, they want, you know, if they want to secure their own power for, you know, the rest of the 21st century. Because it is, you know, it is, like, perhaps the most politically uh, explosive dynamic divide and it always has been since the founding since day one of the united states like slavery i mean the negro question let's just call it that as they used to call it has always been like the most hotly contested political issue the one that like causes the most uproar so they could finally recognize just do the payout um but uh, what is true is that they will not do that unless, like, the heat is really turned up on their asses. Yes, yeah. And to... <clears throat> great point. Yeah, like, I, and to tie... Because what you said about, like, the sort of... Uh, the, the, the bougie black people, like... The sort of the Jay-Z class of... Jay-Z yeah. classes of black America. Or, or the 13 black billionaires or whatever, right? Right, like, those those types. Like, okay, the, the boule, the, you know, Jack and Jill types. Um... I'm not going to explain what Jack and Jill is uh, to people. Look that up. <laughs> this is in, sort of like a really in-house reference. Um, so, like, yeah, like, the sort of Jack and Jill black people, the boule types, um, tying it to land. This is why, like, after Juneteenth, I, I put out a tweet, and I, I basically said that, you know, in commemoration of Juneteenth, what we need is, like, land self-determination and reparations and reparations in terms of like financial compensation in the form of like yeah i think 11 trillion dollars at minimum actually that that's let's start there because there's a thing when you're negotiating uh you gotta yeah. start high then go low so 11 i would say at minimum 11 trillion we can go even more and then when you negotiate down like okay it's gonna be less than what you want but you still get something better than like negotiating from like, uh, yeah uh, so so i think like like tying because i think all that stuff is tied together like the the financial compensation land question self-determination the, the financial compensation would basically like that'd be like the initial like startup finance capital for black self-determination and that's when like when we're talking about justice and racial justice that's when you can actually start to like you know even the fucking scale because the thing is like after slavery what really happened is that like we weren't really free we were just set loose like we were set loose in the very system that still like enslaved us and so like that's like you know why you know reconstruction just just failed and why there was jim crow like basically because like the south you know, still needed a black underclass and hence the Jim Crow laws. So, um, you know, we weren't really given anything. We didn't, we weren't given like, uh, our ancestors were not given like education or like, you know, job skills and things of that sort. That's why, you know, why 40 acres and a mule that, that's, you know, that phrase is steeped in black consciousness because it's like, if we got land, we could rebuild. So when you, when you have land, and 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 in my in my opinion, when it comes to land, like 
I, I still think this land belongs to indigenous people, but I'm going I'm to say like a lot of conversations with land back and reparations with indigenous people, quite a few of them have said online, even people I know personally have said like, there should be land for black people in the United States. Just in the, So those two things can work together. So if, if, if we're talking about like, you know, these questions, like it, when we talk about land self-determination reparations, that would mean, yes, the Jay-Z and the people, the people who are like, we need to buy black and blood, they would have to have, they would have to show themselves to be fucking useful. Like they would have, they would be the ones to basically rebuild the black nation yeah. but like jay-z with title like no like a lot of these like you know they, yeah i mean like, yeah they're fucking clowns they're it's right as it's it's too much of an ask for them like to behave like a functioning national bourgeoisie which i mean you know i think when we read cabral he mentions like yeah they can have a role in the liberation struggle because they're the ones positioned you know, to be able to set up the institutions like right away, but exactly, but you know, they're not leading the struggle. I mean, yes, let's be clear that you know, like, yeah, like a cash payout is is the is the reform. That's the concession. It's not what we'd be organizing towards. That would be full on self determination in the form of collective land holding. Which is to yes. say, not right because because this is because you know going back to the Dawes Act, like yeah, this is the the American mentality is right. Every every man um, has their own has his own plot, and you know you don't necessarily you can't really build a nation on that. So it would be like a collective amount of land would be you know the sovereignty over over it would be transferred. Um, but that is you know for any uh, you know. Florida governors who may be listening or whatever, uh, we're not, that is like in a you know, situation which like basically the entire empire comes crashing down. But it is, but it is that that's the thing that has to be organized for <laughs> to get the you know boulet class to like act correctly. You have to be pushing all the way from the edge. That's the only way any reforms ever get won, like ever in history. Yeah, is people have to be pushing all the way for the huge thing. So that's the way to think about it as far as I'm concerned, because, you Mm -hmm. know, the pandemic proved that one, you can just cut people checks and it's fine. And two, you can make up trillions of dollars and give it out to people uh, because money doesn't really mean anything. So, you know, my so the idea that like it can't be done is ridiculous. Uh, Like it clearly can be done. It can. Uh, They just don't want to do it because nobody's making them. Right, we have to make them, and that's a good segue into our discussion, the critical race theory. Before I forget, like, <clears throat> I'm a I'm a deuce paying member of the All African People's Revolutionary Party. It's basically um, Pan African Socialism um, under the beliefs of like Kwame Nkrumah and Ahmed Sekou Toure. So, like, our position on this, like, when it comes to land, is um, <clears throat> our land base is in Africa, so um, it. As long as Africa is not free, then all people of African descent are not free. So uh, when it comes to the land, like, you know, liberating Africa should come first. But, you know, like we're, we, we we have uh, partnerships with the, you know, indigenous uh, peoples. Um, and 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 uh, and I just, you know, wanted to mention that, like, uh, even in conversations I've seen, like, I've been noticing more indigenous activists when it comes to the the phrase of land back and reparations, I've heard a lot of indigenous activists today say that like 
you know, they're not gonna, they, they, a lot of them don't really want to kick black people out, I mean, like, uh, and some of them will say, like, yeah, like, when it comes to reparations for black people, they should have land here in the United States, even if, you know, they don't want to, if, if they're not focused on Africa, so, I just want to kind of, uh, put that out there, um, just to kind of, especially those sort of, like, finer, uh, theoretical points, but, and also just to give a shout out to, like, also, the black and indigenous activists who've been working really hard on this issue as well so like you know if joe biden's not gonna do shit like those those activists who are pushing for real reparations and real revolutionary change like uh big shout out to them but anyway yeah let's talk about critical race theory <laughs> the right is throwing a fucking hissy fit over this yeah I mean, everything. I mean, on some level, this is completely absurd. On another level, everything old is new again. Um, and as I said, uh, you got to do something with all the riled up Q people. And I mean, look, this is organizing. This is organizing. Like the Republican Party understands. <laughs> they they took all these people, activated them. Uh, you know, by talking about you know elite satanic pedophile rings. Um, and now, and then got them all riled up to, you know, do, uh, I guess, uh, insurrection cosplay, but you know, what are you going to do then? Like there, there's always another ask. And so now they are getting arrested at school board meetings, uh, claiming, you know, that like they don't want their kids indoctrinated with the theory that gets taught in law school. So, yeah. So let, yeah. So let, so like, let's ground this. So critical race theory it it basically coalesced in like the seventies, and so late the late professor Derek Bell, who was a Harvard law professor, he was in the seventies. He was gr- uh, growing frustrated with the limitations of the civil rights movement. So, all right, historical context, because uh, we do a lot of history and theory on this podcast, in addition to current events. But a lot of history and theory stuff is very much related to everything that's going on right now. So, um, like. After the Civil Rights Act passed in '64, uh, black politics and the in the issue of race, like there was, um, there were some real like I think disagreements emerging because uh, the sort of conventional like mainstream approach to the Civil Rights Movement up to like 1964 was focusing on combating explicit racism and removing explicit uh racist discrimination in institutions in the united states and so the civil rights act basically essentially banned explicit racial discrimination and banned like you know the open open apartheid system of uh jim crow um so so some people were like okay we got rid of these um explicit formal barriers so that means like racism is over but then there are others who were like okay that was important, but there's still racism going on because the the north the north and the south black politics in the north and the south was actually a little bit different because a lot of the energy for like integration, integrating lunch counters, all that stuff was done in the south, but in the north, like you know, um, particularly Harlem, uh, there was no like uh, explicit like you know no negroes allowed at like these lunch counters there were other forms of racism going on in the north particularly when it came to employment um and housing was housing housing was a big thing housing police terrorism and so that's why black nationalism really took off in in harlem 
uh, and in in the North, like Black nationalism and Pan Africanism, really like when it it really got a lot of uh, uh, holding in like north the northern urban areas because um that's where like there were black people who were really disgruntled with the fact like okay yeah like there's no jim crow but things are still fucking racist i'm not a you know not able to get like a job to uplift uplift yourselves not able to get decent housing police terrorism so yeah that's why that's why marcus guard was able to organize very well in harlem and along with malcolm x too so basically the 64 civil rights act uh kind of was proving black radicals of the north like their point correctly like hey yeah we can remove these formal barriers but there's still other forms of racism so basically critical race theory in the 70s and 80s was like it came from like legal academics who were trying to say like okay this is how racism is still embedded in america's institutions and the law so critical race theory is basically like a looking at american law with like a heightened race consciousness to see patterns of like racial discrimination racial inequality racial oppression and so basically the point of critical race theory is proving like i think what our people are realizing like more people are realizing is that like racism is still embedded in america's institutions so basically if you want to understand like institutional racism systemic racism critical race theory like yeah it helps you understand yeah it, but it you don't really need to read the theory to understand it. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, like, very... This is It's grad school stuff. I mean, it's not... It is. It is, yeah. And and I think it is useful, especially because, like, you know, in the Reconstruction, revanchist era, like, it, like alongside, like, explicit Jim Crow, de jure segregation, were also a whole bunch of, like, you know, covert racism of, like, not explicitly racist laws passed, like, vagrancy laws or you know uh loitering stuff like that that mm-hmm. were passed to you know achieve what white supremacist ends but they weren't explicitly white supremacist and so yeah critical race theory is basically looking through the institutions of america and figuring out the things that are not explicitly racist but achieve those ends which is a lot of stuff but it is mostly it is mostly like a not. I mean, it's it's not really like a well known thing. I mean, I think I remember reading a couple of stuff in college, you know, at Stanford, but it's not something that you know really is the, all that relevant outside of law school or whatever. And um, I and what I mean, what it really is is just a repackaging of the cultural Marxism scare that happened, like I think back in twenty thirteen, yeah, or whatever. Uh, yeah. and I though I do also remember Breitbart uh complaining back when he was alive, uh complaining about critical race theory back then, but nobody really was paying attention. It didn't become the thing it did now. Uh but you know, back yeah. then they basically had this idea that uh the Frankfurt School, which were a bunch of Marxist Jewish German intellectuals that got kicked out in Nazi Germany, uh came over to the US and sort of started developing different theses. I mean, the way it's phrased is like they were looking for a new revolutionary class outside of the proletariat because they thought it was too reactionary. I mean, this is like Mark Hughes, Horkheimer, Adorno. I mean, it's, I, mm-hmm. I you know, you read some of it in college. That's what like the self-styled radicals are. I think Obama <laughs> bragged about reading some of it. He was also taught by Derek Bell, I think. 
Um, I believe so, yeah. I, I mean, Derek Bell, because, yeah, Obama... Obama was at Harvard Law School when Derek Bell was still teaching there, so I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, yeah. you know, sort of... I'm, uh, still got to confirm, but I'm pretty sure, yeah, like, if Obama did not teach... Sorry, did not take a class by Derek Bell. He was definitely at Harvard Law School at the time that Derek Bell was teaching there. Just, just yeah. the timeline. Yeah, and but we point out, you know, and it's pretty dense and some of it's interesting. It's definitely not really anything that gets... I mean, maybe some of it gets taught at, like, the very, like, top tier, like, you know, country day schools, um, you know, for where real rich motherfuckers go. But it's not a thing that, like, anyone in any regular public school knows anything about right no it's not being taught and i can say that as, as somebody who works <laughs> in the community college system and 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 also full disclosure uh <clears throat> i um in my hometown current place pittsburgh california like i've been involved in this ethnic studies campaign and so i'm actually um on the committee to design curriculum and thankfully like we have the some autonomy from the school district to decide what's in the interest of the community so so I've I've been involved in these conversations. That that's part of the reason why this critical race theory, like the co- conservative backlash against it, popped on my radar. Uh, because really, yeah, because as as Peter, you're right. Like they're trying to tie critical race theory to like cultural Marxism and like Marxist indoctrination. Basically, what the conservatives, their argument, and there's already been bills in um, Texas and Florida to ban the teaching of critical race theory. Basically, the right wing, they're saying that critical race theory is Marxism, which it's it's not. It's not Marxism. Um, and it, they're basically saying it's going to teach students to hate America and to hate white people and embrace communism. I mean, I mean, I mean, the truth does make you hate America. I'm sorry. You guys should have thought about that for doing before doing all the atrocities. <laughs> But really what it is, the context of it is really, this is like a right-wing backlash against, specifically, like, there's been more, um, uh, like, anti-racism efforts in schools and in companies, like, ever since the, yeah, since summer 2020 and the, the, um, well, two waves of Black Lives Matter protests, but I think, like, summer 2020 really, you know, elevated the, the heat on this, um, there's been a lot of, like, anti-racism trainings efforts in schools companies etc etc um and so that that is what's really animating this right-wing conservative backlash against quote-unquote critical race theory because there's this um dipshit right-wing activist named uh christopher rufo um who was previously a documentary filmmaker but he became like a right-wing activist and basically like he has been tying like a lot of um these like anti-racism trainings to critical race theory and he's been using basically what he essentially it's like right-wing propaganda to tie like anti-racism with critical race theory with cultural marxism like what he and so that's that's what's been all all over like Fox News and right wing media and shit like that is they're trying to tie like all the protests and like um white people speaking out against racism basically what they're saying is like oh this is all cultural Marxism it's like uh teaching people to embrace communism and hating America and white people hating themselves and hating white people and so 
that's that's really what this is because there's been more and a lot of the like these anti-racism efforts are just boilerplate shit and it's about like narrow very very narrow diversity slash inclusion stuff because like these institutions themselves are implicated in institutional racism so they've been figuring out like okay fuck like we can't like especially like in academia like some people are, are realizing like okay yeah like we know this lot of institutional racism in academia what the fuck are we gonna do so there's like i've you know been hearing people talk about like how do you root out institutional racism in the very institutions that are responsible for institutional racism so like that's why there's been like these anti-racism efforts and stuff like that and da 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 and so yeah there's and and like i said that stuff is very surface level kind of boilerplate doesn't really do much in, in terms of real material change and improving material conditions but yeah this is this is what this this right-wing backlash against critical race theory is like what all all they're basically lumping all the protests and the anti-racism stuff as like uh oh it's all critical race theory it's all marxism but it's it's just yeah it, yeah it's, well there i mean it is kind of funny in the sense that uh yeah christopher rufo i think we're going off the same new yorker article um he basically yeah he was like i guess he was probably like he started out kind of liberal but you know then eventually turned right wing and when he was like doing doc working for pbs or something and uh yeah yeah he he got a leaked because he writes for uh, the a publication for the Manhattan Institute, which is like extreme libertarian uh, free market shit. That is like just cool yep. shit. Um, and yeah, somebody leaked like a anti-racism training from the city of Seattle because he lives in Seattle. A lot of reactionaries in Seattle, um, actually, despite its reputation. A lot of I mean, a lot of Nazis, especially in the Pacific Northwest. But it's not really quite as progressive as everyone wants to think it is having spent a year there but um yeah he what well, and then like he wrote about it and then like other people started sending him their own leaked because this is all happening on zoom right because of the pandemic so these are all like re- you know secretly recorded zoom conversations like look at this dumb shit and i think we've talked about like yeah the sort of you know anti-racism in industry that's propped up and he yes he specifically right. name checks uh ibram x kendi and robin d'angelo and he basically <laughs> says that he looked through the footnotes and found critical found like david Derek bell and kimberly crenshaw then looked through those footnotes and found his way back to i guess marcusa or something then, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then he wrote about it and then uh I guess, you know, someone who works for Tucker Carlson found it. And so he went on Tucker Carlson. And then after that, like his whole shit blew up because, yeah, they were looking, you know, the Republicans were looking for something to blame all the, uh, you know, all the explosive protests and all the wokening, which like, look, look, we all hate all the brand woke shit. Like everyone yes. thinks it's stupid. Uh, every it's all it's all just basically trying to say don't smash my windows. Um, but right, right, you know, yeah. like every everyone hates it, but they're looking. You know, they need something to like get their base like to blame it on. So yeah, they make up this phantom thing, and uh, they they say, well, hold on, let me pull it up because he has like it's it's a very strange thing 
But, you know, this is like the Frank Lunch, just like, uh, you know, sort of uh, focus group type bullshit um, about like, uh, you know, marketing language. And it says its connotations are he's talking about like critical race theory is the perfect political weapon because he says, uh, you know, its connotations are all negative to most middle class Americans, including racial minorities who see the world as quote-unquote creative rather than quote-unquote critical, quote-unquote individual rather than quote-unquote racial, and practical, quote-unquote, rather than theoretical. Strung together, the, fr- the phrase critical race theory connotes hostile, academic, divisive, race-obsessed, poisonous, elitist, anti-American. Most perfect of all, Rufo continued, critical race theory is not an externally applied pejorative Instead, it's the name, you know, it shows itself. I mean, okay, whatever. I don't think it, I mean, this is not real, like, there, yeah, there's some, I mean, I don't want to minimize, like, the, the, the bills being passed because, like, net in Florida, like, next to the bill DeSantis passed about banning critical race theory from schools was one that is basically going to force, like, kids to learn all the bullshit, like, just straight up lies that come out of, like, the victims of communism foundation so that everyone remembers how uh stalin and hitler were basically the same thing and actually stalin was probably worse you know i mean it but it's complicated but yeah stalin was probably worse than hitler and also he passed a bill to uh basically survey the political views of all like faculty at public universities um and not anonymously survey them either and then determine and use that the results of that survey to determine like which schools get funding so i mean this is like like the critical race theory part of like you know people uh getting arrested at school boards which i mean half of them are probably paid plants anyway um it's i don't know any anytime some black guy uh who you know he has that uh republican idiotic look about him I mean, you, you see you see these people show up from time to time and just goes on some very long rant about how I'm not a slave. I'm not going to be reduced to racism, you know, and then go into, you know, boilerplate Republican talking points. I mean, I'm pretty sure they're all paid. And if they're and if those dudes aren't getting paid, uh, I mean, they should be. But right. They, I mean, that that is a front for like what is actually going to be like real Pinochet type shit, which is to say that, like, yeah. I mean, they are going to start going after, like, I mean, I don't want to, like, sound the alarm too much, but these are real things to be concerned about because they are going to actually start suppressing, like, you know, leftist to actual Marxist thought. I mean, like, you think, like, they allowed that stuff to, uh, like, hang around in academia because they, one, viewed it as, you know, basically harmless, and two, it's good to, you know, have keep an eye on those people, you know, having them in a university is a way to keep an eye on them. Um, but, you know, if once, once the, uh, I mean, you know, look, because there's no real super, new uh, streams of super profits coming in to smooth over all the internal contradictions of this horrendous empire, like, we are going to start fighting. I mean, we've already started fighting amongst ourselves, and that's going to be more so. And so, you know, all the, yes, to tie it all the way back, you know, yeah, all the... Um, you know, techniques we honed abroad will be coming back home and they, yeah, they will, 
eventually start uh you know doing like new palmerades and stuff and yeah suppressing marxist thought that criticizes the capitalist system i mean i think anti-capitalism was one of the conditions biden put in his list of like domestic violent extremists yeah for domestic terrorism i mean so you know i've (laughs) and like obviously the things we say on this podcast like i mean you know we're trying I don't think any of it's legally actionable, but they change the law and then they make it legally actionable. So this is stuff to be concerned about. But I think also it underscores the need to get these ideas out of the academy and yeah. like be able to like, exactly. uh, you know, circulate them, uh, you know, among the broader populace. So they can't just, you know, fire a couple of professors and then like no, nobody has access to these ideas anymore. I mean, this is, you know, I don't think that. I mean, look, every, there are plenty of criticisms to be made of academia, but there are a lot of people in there that are trying to do, like, important work for the movement or the struggle. But you you can't keep that information locked in there. Like, you have to get it out. And I think that that's the only response to this kind of stuff because, yeah, they are going to try and suppress information that, you know, goes against their agenda. But, I mean, everyone kind of does that. It's not any surprise, but it is chilling and, you know, though equally ridiculous to see it, to see this is how they play it out. Yeah. Yeah. And in these bills, like, because the thing is critical race theory is not actually taught in K through 12 schools. It's they're not actually taught. But really what these these bills and these efforts are doing is basically just to whitewash American history. That's really what it is. Like they they're trying to whitewash american history and give like a a sanitized version of american society and history that um make white people especially reactionary white people comfortable that's that's really like the efforts behind like these bills to ban critical race theory it's not about banning the actual theory itself because most of these motherfuckers don't even know what it is don't they, they don't know they don't know who Derek bell is they don't know who kimberly Krenz. they've never they don't know what they, these yeah. words. Are. They, they, they don't just, even read their own books, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, what it really is is like, uh, basically, yeah. So, white backlash and conservative backlash because the, I think from their perspective, they see like these protests and they see like their idea of America going away, and so, um. They they don't want like their kids being taught about like slavery or genocide or you know racism. But the thing is, is that like, um, you know, this country's demographics are changing. That's another thing. It's like, I think sometime by uh, I think by twenty forty or twenty fifty, the majority of America's population will be non-white. And I know like there was a there was a year previously, a couple years ago, where the majority of newborn children were not white um so you know that's changing the demographics and along with immigration so i think um you know i I think that was a major reason behind trump's presidency presidency was like this real uh anxiety within huge segments of white america about like their idea of america being this white nation going away with changing demographics and i think um when you add in the george floyd protests and um yeah like all the fake woke shit is annoying but 
I think within this, there's probably like a, I don't want to say increase, but like maybe like a sense of greater sense of urgency. Let me, I'll, I'll put it that way. And I'm, I'm being very kind here. Like there is a kind of like a sense of urgency or where it's about like, um, just because of the nature, I think of the George Floyd murder. Like, I think there's more people who are somewhat aware of these problems. And so, wow. um, yeah. So like, I think that's like the, the these conservatives, these, these activists, like, rufo and others this is really what it is like they want to sanitize american history and like they don't want people to think about this stuff because they're invested in this idea of america being like this white nation this white protestant nation this white capitalist nation and i think um you know the they see like again even the most mild and boilerplate of anti-racist efforts is like you know the coming of the apocalypse so yeah, yeah, I mean, because there has been a discursive shift, I think, you know, and in uh, education Discur- and pedagogy. D- discursive shift, yeah. that's, yeah, that's, yeah. That was, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, but only if you consider shift. how terrible things were even in the 90s, like, like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I had a, uh, like, I took APUS and actually read the textbook and had, like, an idealistic kind of lefty, uh, you know, teacher, and so I was attuned to a few more things gesturing towards the truth but i mean most people like the shit they learn in american history is just you know schoolhouse rock bullshit and uh, you know that's changed that's changed a little bit right some kids started reading howard zinn or whatever and you know they started back talking their parents and so they're their republican parents and so now they're republican parents instead of trying to explain the truth about america to them uh, they're just going to, you know, whine and force the school board to stop teaching, you know, something resembling the truth. But I think it's important to understand that, like, even in the 90s, how bad the discourse was and how it was just like, you know, a common thing to say. It was conventional wisdom that, like, you know, black people are basically responsible for their own conditions because of a cultural poverty. Like, I'm watching The Sopranos right now, which was made, yeah, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Not really like, you know, the ancient halcyon, ancient days of yore where, you know, it was the times, man. I mean, people knew this shit then, but like even that show like is shockingly anti-black, the the way they portray black people and the way like they portray like, you know, the racist Italian Americans and how they, you know, how they feel about um, about this country. And it's like even back then, you know, in the 90s in early 2000s like it was very i mean yeah before woke times like most people did not believe structural racism existed and now i think you talk to the i think you talk to the average person there is more of an awareness that like the conditions of black people and bipocs let's say in this country are product of structural decisions and not just you know their own personal moral failings or whatever and obviously Republicans don't like that because if it's true that it's a system, then it's something that could be changed. Then you'd have to do something about it, and they don't want mm-hmm. to do that. So instead, they're just gonna, you know, get their designated whiners to whine, and then do, you know, the same fascist shit that they always do. But I mean, I I think it's also 
important to point out that the reason, you know, they can pass this kind of shit is because Democrats have basically given up on contesting state legislatures and the real infrastructure for the authoritarian hellscape that's coming down the pipeline is going to be passed through state legislatures. Like that's, you know, because they're much more effective at that stuff. And I mean, it's not, it's only a few more before the Republicans like have 38 and could pass constitutional amendments, you know, assuming they can pick off like the, you know, enough weak Democrats, you know, if they gain control of the House and Senate, you know, to get a two thirds, which they could very easily do in 2024, honestly, if you think about it, because the Democrats, like, yeah, they let this, but I mean, yeah, they basically seated state legislatures outside of, you know, their specific turf to Republicans. And this is the thanks, you know, this is the result that we get. But you know, that's their job. So, yeah. And, um, now we'll segue into the last part of this episode, which is, um, yeah, this state of millennials, because, um, you know, it's, it's the year 2021 and, uh, millennials are beginning to turn 40 and, uh, CNBC has this, um, series called middle age millennials which that's just fucking like now people are saying oh once you hit 33 you're middle aged i'm like well that's not fucking middle aged because normally middle aged i'm thinking of like midlife crisis you hit that like in your late yeah. 40s early 50s that's middle aged but when you're in your like your 30s and 40s like yeah don't you fucking tell me in middle age what the fuck right <laughs> so you. i'm just getting right. started thank you yes yeah, same here like <laughs> Um, so it's been, uh, there's, yeah, there's this CNBC article called, um, meet the middle-aged millennial homeowner debt burdened and turning 40. It's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. But so like millennials, um, uh, yeah, we've been stereotyped as like perpetually young and single and financially irresponsible, but you know, things are becoming more complicated when the oldest millennials turn 40 which is this year technically yeah because the 1981 that's like the cutoff for being a millennial i believe like 1981 1982 so being 2021 yeah the oldest millennials are turning 40 this year um so despite that like there there are um despite like millennials a lot of us being a lot of millennials being renters um older millennials those born between 1981 and 1988 Shit, I'm at the cutoff, the end cutoff of older millennials, 88. Um, 59% are homeowners. Uh, and there's this survey polled 1,000 U.S. adults from ages 33 to 40 around a number of topics, including um, homeownership, student loans, and employment. So, yeah, so they asked, like, which of the following best describes your current living situation? So, yeah, closest 60% own a home close to 30% rent, a little over 10% live with family, and then, like, I think, what's that, like, 2 or 3% are homeless. Um, so, yeah, they say, like, most older millennials have owned their home for several years. It says over half of them purchased their home more than five years ago, while roughly, while about 40% have owned their home for one to five years. Roughly 5% of older millennials say they've had, they've made a home purchase in the last year. Yet the road to homeownership for this generation hasn't been without sa- sacrifice. Jeng Busby. So they're in interviewing. They talked talk to this couple. Uh, 
purchased his home for just under $450,000 in 2015. Even though he and his wife were lawyers, juggling the cost of housing with major expenses such as student loan payments and childcare meant he couldn't start saving for retirement until about three years ago. And these kinds of trade-offs are, aren't uncommon. Uh, it goes on to say, many older millennials, including Jang Busby, had to get creative when paying for their home. About 10% reported taking a loan from their retirement accounts, while roughly 20% used a credit card to help with a purchase and closing costs, including the down payment. Nearly one to five older millennials also receive help from their parents or other family members in funding the purchase of their home. When it comes to achieving financial achieving home home ownership, older millennials were just scrappy and very resourceful, says Harris Harris Pole CEO John Gerzema. Um, Jing Busby's mother and mother-in-law chipped in to help cover the down payment following last-minute issues with their original lender. We had to be very resourceful, he says. Ten days before the couple was set to close on their, ho- on their house, their original lender told them they could no longer do a 10% down payment as originally promised and needed to put down 20% of the roughly $450,000 home price. That basically means, I think, like, if we're talking about 20%, that's around, like, $80,000. Uh, um, yeah. The couple switched lenders, but with the clock ticking, their parents stepped in to help make up the difference in what their savings would not cover. If we had come out of school with good jobs, it wouldn't have been an issue, Jeng Busby said. He graduated from college in 20, 2008 at the start of the Great Recession and had to t- take odds and edge jobs because he wasn't able to find full-time, decent-paying work. Jeng decided to go to law school in 2010 after gig work wasn't enough to pay with bills. He graduated in 2012, entering a legal industry that was in a downward spiral. He made about 20 an hour when he started work as an attorney while his wife worked for her mom for a few years. The couple eventually scrapped, scrapped, scraped together enough to purchase a home that Jeng Busby expected it to be easier. Uh, I come from a middle-class family where we thought law school was a winning ticket, he said. I had the expectation I was going to come out of law school and be able to pay my loans, but that was not the reality. Despite the legal ladder and becoming a partner in a firm, he still owes about $150,000 on his student loans. Uh, as graduate school prices... As, at graduate school prices, it's seriously like credit card debt. I'm paying aggressively now, but that obviously affects what I could spend on housing, family, and leisure. Um, and it also says, like, uh, homeownership rates still lag previous generations. Um, oh, good. They're getting into the racial demographics. Although older millennials still manage to become homeowners, about 28% still rent. Another 12% are living with their parents or other family members. Homeownership rates among black and Hispanic older millennials lags, lag their white counterparts, as do rates among those who do, don't have a college degree. Overall, homeownership rates among older millennials are also lower than those of older generations. Um, so there, there's a lot of it, but I think it's just kind of confirming what we, you know, we, what we know. But, like, I, I, when I was reading this article, like... Um, you know, I remember. Wait, because Peter, you graduated Stanford twenty eleven, right? Yeah, and so, I, yeah, I mean, I was you know, like my personal like post graduation journey was a little bit weird because I mean, yes, I don't like I didn't have any loans just because like they had that much money and we were like below the cutoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I never, so I didn't have any loans to pay back. So I guess I felt I missed out on that critical millennial experience, but. 
I also like had no idea what it is I wanted to do. Um, I, or, you know, I guess I tried to do journalism or something in 2011, which, ha <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, I, you know, I'm now at the point where, like, it is looking like, okay, I'm just, I mean, really, I'm just sick of renting, and, you know, it's possible for me, like, depending on the certain city, to, like, actually buy a house, um, but, you know, it's, it's, like, very, like, <laughs> The real estate market is a very uh, central and complicated thing to like the American political economy, and I mean it really ties into settler colonialism a lot of ways in the sense that like this land is supposed to constantly be appreciating in value, and land speculation was you know one of the big attractors of you know not just uh, American independence but also expansion. You know that. Because, you know, the maxim, of course, is buy land because God's not going to make any more of it, right? Well, uh, I guess you can if you dispossess, a, you know, a continent from whole civilization. Uh, so that's the whole thing is that, like, America does have enough land. But, I mean, not really. But that, but that was, you know, that's sort of been the undergirding driving principle. And, you know, in the 50s, right, the deal was made with... Uh, I mean, the white working class, at least, that, like, you know, will give you home ownership as a means of building wealth. And that's the, you know, building block of the quote unquote American dream, um, you know, but that's based on like a productive economy. I mean, as a, as as, you know, basically the productive elements of United States uh, either leave or are, you know, basically brought in line more with like the wages and living standards of the developing world, which if, you know, an industry manufacturing really comes back, it's going to come back at that scale. I mean, that dream of home ownership, you know, is going to, uh, I mean, it's going, it's getting further and further away and it's going, and it's not really going to become as much of a, uh, as much of a possibility, at least in the sense of it being, institution for wealth building i mean this is like in you know and in the biggest cities like seattle you know where yeah shit is completely insane right they're putting you know that's what all it's all tiny homes and like shipping containers and you know a lot of the kind of yimby stuff which is you know about basically incentivizing developers to build you know giant condos instead of you know the typical single family Mm. home zoning um, is basically acknowledging that, like, yeah, that may not be on offer. I mean, I think right now, you know, there are definitely still cities where it's affordable, but, like, like Columbus is, you know, where I grew up, I was thinking, like, okay, well, that's a place where it's still relatively affordable, except that, like, the average housing, the average home price has gone up, like, $100,000 in six years. Like, now it's two fifty. now it's $250,000. I mean, and there are still parts, you know, you know, that that's including all the suburbs are definitely like still, you know, work some working class neighborhoods. But I mean, that's gentrification. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. It's definitely a significant uh, contradiction because we saw in 2007, the whole thing can go bot can go belly up, you know, and it's, there's a lot of yeah, there's it's it's based on a lot of it's built on a lot of sand. I mean, you know, literally in Miami, though, I guess maybe that's insensitive. 
<laughs> considering what happened, but that you know, it, it's yeah. I I don't know what to say, but other than like this is something that is going to pose a big problem because they say that basically like economic trends in America are agglomerating two cities and really to only like 10 cities or so. Right. And then basically the rest of the country is going to get left out or they're going to take the crumbs from, you know, like the 10 or 12 cities that are the centers of economic life, but where, but those cities, like, you know, nobody's going to be able to live. Where's everyone going to live in those cities? I mean, you don't really get to live. I don't know. I don't know. I don't I don't see how like, you know, track housing excerpts are just going to appreciate in value. But, you know, yeah. these are things I'm not an expert in. And it's something I'm still trying to like work through in my head. But it's it's definitely like it's definitely something to be concerned about. Yeah. What what struck what struck out to me is um, I think uh, what that article what I got from that article is that adulthood for millennials is not going to be the same as it was for definitely not as the same was for baby boomers and not the same as for Gen Xers. Um, because like, yeah, the, the 2008, um, cause I, cause I graduated in 2010 and things were still bad at that time. And, um, I almost went through a similar journey as, as the guy in the article, like, because I, I wanted to go to law school and then, um, gosh, look at the debt he came out with. I'm actually glad I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, like you, I graduated from Stanford, but with no debt. Cause I was, you know, in that financial cutoff where financial aid was plentiful enough where I can graduate there with no debt. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I kind of worked like, um, you know, odd jobs here and there, tutoring and stuff like that, but it was never enough to sort of, you know, survive and stuff like that. And I was living at home and then like, uh, you know, applied to law school, didn't get in. And, um, um, and then, you know, what, at the time I was writing and so I, I was able to make some money freelance writing, but you know, anybody who knows like about the, you know, writing and journalism like you know it's it's really tough making a living off of writing and so um i thankfully like toward um my late 20s uh was able to find a job like you know teaching and taing and i've been doing that for a while now actually so it's been pretty consistent but you know um uh and I, i've heard stories of, like even other kind of like graduate student and then yeah oh yeah i got my um i, I was taing while being in my in my mfa program and um i finally got my mfa degree in the mail a couple months ago from university of san francisco so i have my stanford degree and i have my university of san francisco degree the mfa so i have those degrees and i'm so glad to be done with uh you know being through the higher ed machine um but like um and I graduated from USF right before the pandemic. So it was just weird, like, because I had plans, you know, finishing graduate school. Then the pandemic hit. I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay, now I got to. But in in a way, I don't know, part of me was also desensitized because I was like, oh, this the economy is going to be like 2008 again. Yeah, I've been there. All right. Well, I know what to do. <laughs> um, 
But I I I say that because I think um, what the article showed to me is I think like the 2008 financial crash I think you know really should be seen as like a pivotal event in like global economic history in terms of I think it really did um, shape the economic future of a whole generation like our generation and I think even with Gen Z. Like those who graduated during the pandemic and like, I think this event for them is going to be very similar to how 2008 was for us. So I think like Gen Z and millennials, like adulthood for us is going to look very different because in a sense of like that whole, yeah, like a stable American dream, buying a house cheaply in, in the suburbs like that, those days for the most part are are gone like there's a lot less there's much more precarity there you go that's the word i'm looking for there's much more economic precarity among millennials and zoomers than it definitely was for boomers and even for gen x i mean because i know people criticize gen x for being slackers and um this that and the other thing but at the time that gen xers were adults the economy was definitely more stable than it was right when 2008 hit and i think yeah 2008 would show just showed like how it, yeah you know, it was the for, it was the formal demonstration of the total decoupling of finance capital from like the productive economy like exactly. and, and right. now with the recovery we have now it's it's i mean this is what people are talking about like this is a strange recovery and it's like yeah the market finance capital doing great better than ever uh you know they're making more money than was previously thought possible while everyone else is just like what uh, yeah. This is stupid. And, you know, of course, now the, you know, people are realizing like I'm cri- I'm killing myself at my job, you know, to earn basically nothing that I can't save on because like I've had to learn some very hard lessons. And, you know, it's it, I've had it taken a lot to, you know, tell myself and make myself actually believe that, like, you know, <laughs> I didn't really do anything wrong to deserve the, like the situation I'm in right now. And right. that it's just like this is this is what it's like on the ass end of the system, and you know, not everyone is cut out to be a hustler and grinder, and it's frankly absurd and disingenuous to expect that everyone can do that because everyone can't, and like the economics wouldn't work anyway. It's like, oh well, everyone should be an electrician. Well, if you add another five million electricians to the labor market, then like electrician stops being a great paying job. Like people right. who say shit like that don't like, have don't think like. Ec- about economics on a structural level like at all and, right right it's and, all, yeah it kind of reminds me what you're saying reminds me of like some of the um uh kevin samuels videos because like I, I, I definitely kevin samuels he's not yeah, well, well yeah i i think the ideology has taken place like most perniciously among you know certain members of black america precisely mm-hmm. because you know hustle and grind and bootstrap is seen as the only way out of, you know, structural poverty. And so people really do believe this shit. And it does. And it's like there, if, if that were true and it would work for all of us, like you really think they would let that happen. I mean, right. And, and, and I think, um, they meant there's this episode on Chapel trap house that like, I actually, when they were talking about it, I think it, it ties into this because they were talking about like how movies are sexless and like uh, there's 
like millennials are having less sex. I haven't really looked into that, but <laughs> I mean, they, they did make a connection in terms of like um, declining economic prospects and how it shaped like dating and romance. And that actually makes a lot of sense because conventionally, like, you know, when people see dating, especially in the West, I, I can't really speak for like, you know, Africa or other par- other parts like the global South in terms of like how they deal with dating, but definitely like in, in the quote unquote West, the United States, like Britain, you know, like the dating market, <laughs> keyword market, is very much tied to one's economic prospects and social status. Like that, that, I'm not saying that animates all of dating, but, you know, it's definitely there. And I think like when, you know, you have like a event like the 2008 financial crash and then the pan- this pandemic and it's going to shape how people date in romance and like what is so like okay if if you're from a generation that got economically fucked um you know how are you going to start a family and you know buying a house and raising kids because they mentioned childcare, right so th- that's another thing that um i think like when people kind of make fun of millennials for anxieties i, re- I really think that like and i'm just going to say it i really think that the 2008 financial crash was a very uh, traumatizing event for millennials in ways that I think people don't fully appreciate. And I do think that the pandemic and this economic crash of 2020 is going to be a similar traumatic event for Gen Z and the younger generation, especially like the young generation that was like had, you know, class all indoors and through Zoom and all that, like K through 12. Lord, yeah, it, yeah. Lord, Lord only knows. I mean, because... That's I I don't I have a feeling that's not even going to be the most traumatic thing that happens to them in this decade. Oh yeah yeah <laughs> but, yeah yeah uh, yeah. But um, it I I thought this article was interesting just because like it shows because again yeah like millennials this decade like this is this is the year where the oldest millennials turn forty, and so like all these kind of markers of adulthood like it's as this article shows like it's been, um uh a lot more difficult for millennials just because like there were there really was no recovery after 2008 that's just it there was no recovery the the financial sector got a shit ton well well yeah well yes like as you know five million people four million people got kicked out of their houses right but the housing market got right back up and is hot 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 you Mm -hmm. know but the housing market like, this is the whole problem with neoliberalism and basically using the market to structure society. It's like, yeah, the housing market is doing great. That doesn't translate to, like, putting people in homes. And, like, that, you know, it's like, like, the, I mean, look, obviously we've given up on the idea that, like, yes, everyone deserves a place to live, of course. And, you know, we want the the system wants homeless people around because it's a very effective form of motivation to keep you you know yep. it's like yes that's what you know that could be you there but for the grace of god um but yeah i um trying to think what i was going to say beyond that um i mean we should re- wrap up soon anyway yeah oh but, yeah I but i think that yeah i mean it's just it's it like you you know the math just doesn't add up and it hasn't added up for a while i mean you know the previous generations basically just put everything on credit. Um, I mean, basically right. since the 70s, you know, the Keynesian, I guess, you know, 
American dream compromise. I mean, it hasn't really been financially workable. They don't really, and you know, the interests of capital don't really want it to be. I mean, it, like, I think the thing people, Americans especially, make the mistake of is thinking like that 50s, you know, I mean, yes, for all of its problems, it's specifically in, in the soul-crushing nature of suburbia, right? Leaving that aside, even even just taking it on its face, like, that was, you know, an exception. It isn't, it isn't like, people should not have understood that as, like the basis of American society and how mm-hmm. and the template for everything because it really I mean we will and I think like <laughs> as the 21st century progresses and you have more historical distance on this stuff you'll look at it as a passing phenomenon because that's not what America was like in the 30s and 40s I mean coming out of World War II it really like was pretty it was didn't look that different than during the depression and you know there was a big and Yes, the menace of the Cold War did provide like an actual impetus for, you know, the interests of capital to like at least provide some sort of a deal to like get um, workers, you know, not to raise too much hell because it was like, okay, there is actually something that could happen to us. You know, whatever anyone thought about the Soviet Union, it was effective on that level. Now there's nothing. There is no, I mean, there's no alternative, right? (laughs) And so there's mm-hmm. nothing to convince the people at the top to really give any more than, you know, they feel, you know, what draws their fancy on that particular day. And there's no need for them to make this shit work. And I mean, not going to get into the Great Reset and all that stuff, but I mean, these are the inherent crises of capitalism. This is the inherent structural flaws. And, uh, you know, they're not going to get any smoother. So. Yeah, and and I think uh, the reason why I brought up Kevin Samuels is that um, I think the, part of the reason why he has an appeal is because there is like um, a lot of um, sexually frustrated and disaffected black men, and I think um, uh, uh, the you know. I hate saying the word late capitalism, but like, you know, capitalism and like post 2000 financial. Right on time capitalism. Right. There you go. Yeah. I think it's um, really worsened the economic prospects of a lot of black millennial men. And I think like, you know, his message of constantly talking about high value men and da da da, like, um, cause I will say I was, I was watching cause we did a bonus episode on him and we, critiqued him and then i saw some like other videos and there are some videos to be clear like where he he does uh criticize men too to their face um it's just i think it seems like the him criticizing women that gets a lot of clicks like i guess that's part of the the thing but um it one one thing that gets that's missing from those like uh those conversations and like the whole rhetoric of hustle and grind is that like yeah, you can still hustle and grind, but you know, if you're living in a system like this, um, there's so much so, so only so much hustle and grinding you can do. And this idea of like, you know, the high value men, like that that term is so fucking like I don't even know what it means anymore. It's, but... it's so gross, but it's also like I mean, you know, I 
your self worth comes from within. It doesn't come from your, uh, from right. your pocketbook. And you. and like yes. in the, in the eyes of the people that really run this shit, you're all of no value. So I don't right. know what you're talking about. But well, that's the thing. I mean, yeah, I'm, there you go. Yeah, like a lot of like that hustle and grind rhetoric. It's not tied to like macroeconomics in terms of like how the entire economic system is designed to work. It's all like, oh yeah, like things suck in this is like human nature is like they they treat everything like this sort of doggy dog world and that if you just hustle and grind your way out of it you can be fine which is like yeah you you can hustle and grind your way out of it but that's not what, going what, to change what it, the... one in a hundred thousand can yeah but it's also <laughs> like the thing is no no amount of hustle and grinding is going to improve it's not going to change the fundamental material reality that makes why you have to hustle and grind in the first place like it's not the, these conversations don't get at the root of the problem like it's all based on like you know the sort of um uh you know um llc kind of rhetoric like oh if you just start an llc and you can uplift yourself that's empowerment like that's like the sort of the more uh kind of like pyramid scheme yeah well, it's like it's like tying like black empowerment with like pyramid schemes and shit like that and it's like well no like that's not gonna improve like yes like you yourself maybe can get like a i don't know better job or blah 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 like yeah maybe individually but like even if you get a quote-unquote better job like that doesn't always equal like security and yeah like i'm glad you mentioned the electrician thing like yeah if everybody got into the trades that would just lower the quote-unquote financial value of the trades profession so then they wouldn't be um secure jobs so the problem is with those conversations they don't look at macroeconomics it's all like kind of fake personal finance guru shit llc shit and like again like on an individual level people want to do like you know small business I, like i don't really care but it's when people just don't even talk about like the fundamental material conditions and how like those are shaped by capitalism and also specific events like the 2008 financial crash like oh maybe the reason why like um i don't know like maybe you know the people in those videos like oh how come there's no good black men well maybe part of the reason is that like uh 2008 really fucked over the economic prospects of a lot of men and it, it disproportionately hit black men so yeah if you're trying to start like yeah a, a it wiped out family, all black wealth all accumulated right. black wealth got wiped out so. right and if you're trying to do things like start a fucking family and buy a house then yeah like maybe that's an issue and maybe it's not the fault of the individual person for why that happened and I'm glad you said that earlier, Peter. It's like, I, I think, like, you know, if people are down and out, it's not always your fault. Like, and that's something I, I had to realize even after the 2008 crash, because I was like, oh, my God, like, did I fuck up? Like, I went to Stanford and got this really good degree, and I was told, just like the guy in the article, that that would be the ticket out. And then I realized, oh, wait a second, like, this is, that's not the reality. But before 2008, like, the boomer, con I don't want to say the boomer consensus, but, like, sort of, you know, it was, like, the 90s. People thought, like, that that um, train would keep going, and then you can just go and get a college and get a degree, and boom, it would be your, your ticket to middle-class stability. But, like, no, the reality is far more complicated. So, yeah, self-worth comes from within. Learn to love yourself, um, and also learn to analyze external material conditions and external economic realities 
and uh, resist against the system. Take care of yourself. Uh, love yourself. That, to me, is better advice, by the way. I think. I would say that. Like, Learn to love yourself. Self-worth comes from within. If you're impoverished by capitalism, blame capitalism. It's not your fault. But self-worth comes from within. Um, you know, join organizations to fight fight against it. Uh, take care of yourself as much as you can. Um, actually, yeah, I'll, I'll end. I'll fucking end. Yeah, yeah, we're <laughs> running long, but you yeah, know, we're in long. good stuff. But yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think that's basically all that can be said. I mean, the way I see it uh, is that you know, stay alive despite your enemies. Um, mm-hmm. That's because you know, destroying yourself is exactly what they want you to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, recognize that, like, I think there are ways to thrive and love yourself. I mean, though, admittedly, like, your job can d- d- destroy you mentally and physically. And, you know, being able to hold on to a piece of your humanity in the midst of that can be very difficult. But, I mean, I think that is that is a central part of the revolutionary task. I mean, not to yes. get, you know, to self-care or whatever I, because that's a whole other different uh topic but i think this you know what it all ties up in is that the future they promised you or you thought that they promised you is not on offer it's not really viable exactly. and we're gonna have to you know do something that's incredibly hard which is figure out how to make our own future mm-hmm. so that like everyone can have a livable 21st century yes um, so yeah on that note that's a great way to end it yeah um yeah uh anyway we'll do our normal sign out well before the sign out just to kind of wrap up uh <clears throat> if you enjoyed this episode this episode is a little bit longer than we usually do this is like an hour over an hour and 30 minutes but normally our, our episodes are like hour or so um but if you like this episode and want to support us again five dollars a month patreon.com slash real sun car hours you'll you, you that supports our patreon you'll become a patron you can get access to bonus episodes where we have like theory readings uh, yeah we just content. read walter rodney last week it was awesome there you go yeah so um yeah and um you know um uh yeah patreon.com slash real sun car hours um Anywhere between, also anywhere between one to four dollars a month, you don't get bonus episodes, but you help keep the Patreon and the podcast afloat. Or if you just want to like do like a one-time donation, again, PayPal.me, which is basically PayPal.me slash hours. You can, um, yeah, just just uh, donate however much you want, and uh, all all those means of financial support are definitely greatly appreciated. So. Um, yeah, we talked about basically reparations, uh, the conservative batshit controversy over critical race theory, and then the, you know, millennial adulthood in the in the context of post two of the post two thousand in context of after the two thousand eight crash, and then the current reality of capitalism. So, anyway, yeah, uh, thank you guys so much. We'll do our sign out. Keep the faith and stay dangerous. Peace, y'all. See ya.